Last week we talked about sanctification, and a lot of what we're going to talk about today overlaps with that topic, but we're actually going back a bit. The beginning of sanctification is forgiveness, and today's topic is forgiveness. So our, our title is, I, I Believe I Am Forgiven, Help Me Leave Any Doubt Behind Forever. So we're going to talk a lot about forgiveness today. We're going to talk about the side of our forgiveness. That's going to be our single topic today. And right off the bat, I want to give you the big idea. At the moment of my salvation, this is in your notes, at the moment of my salvation, I am legally forgiven of all my personal sin, whether it be in my past, the present, or even in the future. Now, I, I, I'm not super happy with the word legally, but I was not able to think of a better word. Oftentimes, when we try to illustrate something God is, or something God does, our illustration falls apart long before we're done giving it. Because we can't describe God, and oftentimes we can't understand God. We understand what He's told us. We can follow His instructions, but when He says, I am this or I am that, sometimes we just have to accept it because we can't explain it. We can't explain eternity. We can't adequately explain um, the Trinity. We, we can't, on our, in our own mind, by our own logic, we can't bring together free will um, and, and, and God choosing for us who will be saved and who won't be saved. These, these are things that we can't mesh together. So, so when I say I'm legally forgiven, the picture that I want you to see in your mind is a courtroom where God is the judge, we are the defendant. Now, we don't need any lawyers because God is all-knowing. There's no argument to be made that he hasn't thought of already. There's no testimony to be given because he's aware of everything. He knows our life, he knows our sin, he knows our, our good deeds, he knows everything about us. And we come before God, and we all will stand before God one day at, at some kind of, of judgment seat, some kind of trial, if you will. And when we arrive, being all-knowing, he will either say to us, depart from me, I never knew you, or, or welcome, good and faithful servant. And, and good and faithful servant, you might say, well, what if you were only saved a day or two days before you died? Well, you're still a good and faithful servant because you've been redeemed, because you've been changed. You've been made holy and made righteous, and, and you will have eternity to continue serving God. So he will still say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. Some rewards will be greater. Some positions will be higher. We don't know exactly how that's going to work. But when we stand before the judge, it's not going to be a long trial. There won't be any deliberations. He will, he will give his answer. The good news is that the answer has been determined before we get there. Those to whom he says, depart from me, I never knew you, chose not to respond to the gospel. They chose not to seek after God. They chose not to listen when someone explained. They chose not to follow. And those who choose to ignore God, to not follow, to not accept, they don't know God, therefore he doesn't know them. And he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And they immediately head over to receive their, 
judgment, which includes eternity in hell. Now, I happen to think, and I, I think it's in, I can find it in Scripture pretty easily, that there's still going to be levels of punishment in hell. Hell is not a, a one-for-everybody punishment. I think there's going to be additional punishment or increased punishment or increased suffering in hell based on the life you lived, just like there will be increased reward in heaven based on the life you lived for Christ. But legally, when Jesus says, you're forgiven, there is no penalty held against you, the gavel falls and it's a done deal. Now the, the illustration falls apart because the gavel actually fell the moment you accepted Christ as your Savior, the moment your sins were forgiven, the judgment was given and He declared you righteous, He redeemed you, Okay, it falls apart because we can't put that reality into our context. So it is an illustration. It works a little bit. But what I want you to get is that when, when the gavel falls at the, at the courtroom of God, it's a final judgment. It, the legality, there is no appeal. There is no higher court. There is no arguing. It's done. So when, when Jesus says, I forgive you, and God says, now you're a son or a daughter, now you're part of my family, uh, now the Holy Spirit will indwell you, now you belong to me, it's, it's, a, it's finished. We talked about that when we talked about I am saved. The part I really want to impress upon you today is that last part where it says, whether it be my past the present, or even the future. When I come to Christ, I think most of us understand that my past sins are forgiven. They have to be. You can't, I can't be forgiven. I can't be held debt-free. I can't accept the payment that Jesus made on the cross and not include all my past sin. Most of us even pretty instinctually realize that any sin I'm involved in now is also forgiven because I'm saying right now, forgive me of my sin. But a lot of people struggle with future sin because they say, how can I be forgiven of something I haven't done yet? Well, in, in saying that, you, you overlook a couple important things. Number one, God is omniscient, so he knows all your future sin. He also does not exist in time with us. He steps in and out of time. He interacts with us in time. But he exists outside of time. In the beginning, we forget those three words, God created the heavens and the earth. He also created the beginning. He created the first moment in time. Eternity spans outside of time. So it's all now to God. And when he says, I forgive you, and the gavel falls, he's looking at your entire lifespan and he sees all your sin, the sin you created in your past, the sin you're involved in right now in your present, and the sin you will one day commit in your future. So it's all forgiven, the past, present, and the future. And that gives us a mindset that we need to live in. I need to live as a forgiven person. Where it gets difficult is Satan will come in, especially to a new believer, Satan will come in and he'll say, you know what, maybe you're not forgiven. You know, maybe you're forgiven for these things, but this one and this one, they're bigger than the rest. 
And I'm not sure you're sorry enough for God to forgive you. I'm not sure you've done enough to make up for that. And Satan is feeding you lies because that was not part of the package that God gave you. He didn't give you a list of things to do so you could be forgiven. He says, I forgive you. But Satan comes in and he tells his lies and he, and he tries to convince you that you're, you're not who you think you are. You're not where you think you are. That God hasn't done what you thought he did. And then he says, you know what? And, and the sin you're struggling with now, obviously that's off the table. God didn't know about that. What a hypocrite you are. And he says these things. And then he says, and you better watch out because, you know, one day you're going to do something really bad. One day I'm going to get you, and then we'll see what God says. So Satan tells all these lies, and he tries to get you thinking that you're not forgiven so that you stop living like a forgiven person, so you don't live like a redeemed child of God who has eternity in heaven and a purpose here on earth. You start worrying about how God looks at you because you're believing the lie of Satan instead of the truth of God because God looks at you as holy and righteous. And he looks at you as redeemed and he looks at you as his child. So that's the big idea. And I want to give you a bunch of scripture to support that. So we're going to look at scripture that talks about forgiveness. We're going to see what it has for us. Then I'll give you some applications at the end. So we're going to start with Colossians 2, 12 through 14. Again, this is in your notes. It says, when you were dead in your sins, and if you were here last week and the week before, maybe you heard me use the phrase spiritually dead. Okay, when you were spiritually dead, when you were dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, which basically means the mark of God wasn't upon you, our hearts weren't changed. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. God made you alive with Christ. You became alive. You were dead spiritually. You became alive spiritually. Then it says, He forgave us all our sins. That word all includes the past, the present, and the future. He forgave us all our sins. And if we say, well, he couldn't forgive all our sins, we're saying that God's not omniscient. So we have to take it at face value, all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. See, here's one of those places where my illustration falls short because the, the, the penalty for our sin is paid. Justice must take place. So when, when we stand before God and, and all our sin is revealed and, and God says, you're guilty, it's as if Jesus walks in and goes, hey, Dad, don't forget, I already paid the penalty for his sin or her sin, so we can't hold it against him. And God says, that's absolutely right. I now declare you innocent. There is no more penalty to be paid. You owe no wage for your sin. And having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, Jesus was nailed to the cross, and we know that the, our sin was taken on by Jesus. That's how it was nailed to the cross. So we have so many things here. When we're dead spiritually and we're made alive, we owed a debt for our sin. It was paid by Jesus by dying on the cross where our sins were nailed. Let's fill in some blanks here just to be real clear. Number one, all of your sins were future sins when Jesus died for their forgiveness. 
think about this. If we're going to have an issue over future sins, we need to realize that on the date and, and time that Jesus died, none of us were around. So he was dying for all of our future sins. They were all future sins. And if he can die for our future sins then, there should be no question that he can forgive us of our future sins now. All of our sins were future sins. So that just eliminates that whole, that whole dilemma. Number two, all our sins has no time limitations. Has no time limitations. There's, there's not a number of years attached to it. There's no use-by date or expiration. And you can add this on there if you want. I added this in my own notes this morning. There's no punch card. You know, we get a punch card at the ferry. If you buy them ahead of time, you get 20, 20 trips in the ferry, and they cost a dollar less per trip if you get the punch card. And every time you go, they punch it. Well, lo and behold, every single time I finish that punch card, they take it away from me. I no longer have my ferry pass. Well, that doesn't happen with God. He forgives you over and over and over and over again. The punch card never gets full. There is no punch card. There's no time limitations. There's no use-by date. There, there's no you have to be perfect by now or, or else. It doesn't happen. All our sins is all our sins, and there's no, there's no limitations. And number three, God's forgiveness legally meets his requirements for justice. And his requirement is the highest requirement. It meets his requirement. He is the one that says heaven or hell. And he set the standard. And Jesus' death on the cross meets his standard. Therefore, he can grant forgiveness. So if the most powerful judge in, the, in, in existence grants forgiveness, it's a, it's a done deal. It's complete. Let's look at Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. This is uh, being written to New Testament believers about Old Testament practices. So remember that, okay? Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. It can never take away sin. The sacrifices that took place in the temple did not forgive sin. They were not capable of forgiving sin. The death of a sheep or a goat or an ox or a ram was not sufficient to forgive sin. So why did God tell them to do that? He told them to do it because one day there would be a sacrifice sufficient and worthy to forgive sin. And every sacrifice they did at the temple was supposed to remind them that the future sacrifice was coming. We don't sacrifice in any temple today because we're not reminding ourselves about a future sacrifice. We do communion to remind ourselves about a past sacrifice. So the sacrifices in the temple, they didn't do anything, continuing on. But when this priest, speaking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, which means it was done, it was complete, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. He's waiting for God to finish his work. God the Father. For, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Perfect forever. Saved. Being made holy. Sanctified. So God is doing his work. Once and for all. Once for all sin. All right, so number one in your notes, we'll fill in these three blanks. Temple sacrifices 
never forgave anyone of their sins. Number two, Jesus' sacrifice forgave all the sins of all who have, are, and will believe in him. It's sufficient. It's complete. And number three, Jesus' one sacrifice is a forever sacrifice. It never has to be redone. There's no expiration date. There's no annual renewal. Jesus' one sacrifice is a forever sacrifice. Let's look at Matthew 26, 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is Jesus talking to his apostles just hours before he's arrested. Maybe not even hours, maybe just an hour before he's arrested. And he's, he's giving them the Last Supper, which is what we just did as communion. And he's saying, this is the, the bread that represents my body and the juice that represents my blood. And he said, this is the blood of my covenant. He's holding up the juice, wine in his case. He says, it's poured out. Why? Why is his blood going to be shed? For the forgiveness of sins. So in your notes, the entire point of Jesus' sacrifice was to forgive sin. The entire point of Jesus' birth was so he could forgive sin by being sacrificed. Jesus came for the purpose of forgiving sins. That's how big a deal it is to God. Let's look at Acts 2.38. It says, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I chose this verse in Acts because it has three things all together. I want to remind you that we don't build doctrine from the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a transitionary book. Things didn't happen the way they had in the past or the way they are now. They were transitioning between the two, so we don't build a doctrine here. We don't put repent and be baptized together. There's lots of places that separate them, and, and, and we don't put the Holy Spirit and baptism together. There's lots of places to separate them. But here, they're all together revolving around our salvation. So, let's fill in these notes. Number one, we repent in order to receive forgiveness. Repent means to turn, to go the other way. So I'm going to stop relying on my own merit. I'm going to stop following my own plan. I'm going to stop trying to be good enough for God to notice me. I'm going to stop all these things, and I'm going to turn, and I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to do it his way. I'm going, to, I'm going to take the free gift instead of trying to pay for it. I'm going to let God be in control instead of trying to be in control myself. So I'm going to repent. That's my salvation. We repent in order to receive forgiveness. Number two, we're baptized in response to our forgiveness. When I, when I think about what God has done... I want everyone to know it. And I want to obey him. And one of the very first things he asks of us is to be baptized. So I say to myself, wow, I've been saved from my sins. I get to go to heaven for eternity. The Holy Spirit is living inside of me. I have now this, this joy that I never had before, this peace that I never had before. Life hasn't changed on the outside, but it certainly has changed on the inside. I want to follow God, so I'm going to be baptized, because he asked me to, and I want everyone to know what's happened in my life. So, I repent to receive forgiveness. I'm baptized in response to forgiveness. And number three, we receive the Holy Spirit as a result 
of our forgiveness. And by the time the transition period was over, by the time Acts closes, we receive the Holy Spirit at our salvation. The Holy Spirit indwells us. And I don't feel anything. I don't get shivers, and there's no flame above my head, and I don't do any weird things. The Holy Spirit enters in me. And as I, as I let him, as I allow him, as I embrace what he wants to do, he starts working in my life. And, and I can see that work. So that's all based on forgiveness. On the, on the other side of your page, Acts 10, 43, all the prophets testified of who were the prophets, the writers of the Old Testament. All the prophets. So the entire Old Testament, all the authors of the entire Old Testament testify about him, Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So everything that had been written about the Messiah was written about Jesus. The entire Old Testament prophesied. And then it says everyone. Isn't it good news that it doesn't say most people? Isn't it good news that it doesn't say some or a few or, or simply the chosen or something like that? It says everyone who believes. So if we believe, we're part of the everyone. So everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. So in your notes, please realize there is enough sacrifice and enough forgiveness for everyone who wants it. There's enough for everybody. There's, there's not a number, there's not 144,000 to get forgiven and everyone else, oops. There's, there's, it's an open, open list. There's enough forgiveness for everybody. Next one, Ephesians 1, 7. If we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with riches of God's grace. I, I read that wrong. I said if. I should have said in. In him, we have redemption. In him, we have salvation would be another word. I have been redeemed. In him, we have redemption through his blood. It, it's through the sacrifice. The blood was required. That's the commodity in which the debt is paid. So what do we get through his blood? The forgiveness of sins. In accordance with the riches of God's grace. God's grace is giving us what we don't deserve. None of us deserve forgiveness. None of us deserve salvation. But God has poured out his grace in making it available to us. He's allowing us to have it. So he paid the price so that we could be forgiven. And it's his grace. He doesn't owe it to anybody. So number one, it is by the grace of God that we are saved. It's by his goodwill, by his act of love that we're saved. And number two, it is through Jesus' blood that forgiveness is made possible. I mentioned earlier that if the blood wasn't shed, it wasn't the right kind of sacrifice. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be adequate. It wouldn't work. So it's through Jesus' blood that forgiveness is made possible. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's that word redemption again, salvation. We have forgiveness of sins. I want to talk about the word rescued. When, when you're rescued from someone or from something, you're saved from them. That's where we get the word saved. We say, you need to be saved. You need to be rescued. 
it's as if, in, in such, such literal terms, spiritually, but it's as if we are living in a dark world where we cannot see clearly, and we stumble around, and we're injured a lot, and we don't get very far, and we're not very successful because we can't see reality. We can't see the branch we're about to run into. We can't see the stone we're about to stumble over. We can't see someone else or something else who's working against us. We just bump around in the darkness, and we never get anywhere. We never accomplish anything. That's our life spiritually. That's how we are. We're in the dominion of darkness. But Jesus comes into that darkness, and as he is a light, we're attracted to that light. He says, come be a part of me and my light. We join him, and then the lights come on. And we see the obstacles, and we can navigate around them. And he says, here's the pathway that we can follow, and we can go where he wants us to go. And he says, I'll forgive you of your sins. So we're literally rescued. He comes into the darkness, saves us from it, and brings us into his kingdom, which is full of light, the kingdom of the sun. So he, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption. Okay, we're saved through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins. So, in your notes, again, I, I couldn't find a great way to say this, so just work with me. Forgiveness of sin changes our life's orientation from darkness to light. Our life's orientation. I'm living in the darkness, and now I get to live in the light. I'm living in confusion, and now I have clarity. I'm living in a, a cesspool of lies. Now I have truth. I have something to protect me from the darkness. My life's orientation has changed because of my forgiveness. Psalm 103, 8 through 12. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Good news, right? Very good news. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Now this is a psalm. This is from the Old Testament. This is probably David who wrote it. I didn't check. But it's in that era. So it's an Old Testament writing. They are looking forward to the Messiah and he says, he will not always accuse, nor will he harbor anger forever. There is a time coming when complete forgiveness will come. He does not treat us as our sin deserves. We deserve hell. We deserve to be punished. We do not deserve in any way, shape, or form to be forgiven. But he says he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. He doesn't pay us back. He doesn't get even. He doesn't... Take the justice upon us. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Now I said he doesn't force the justice on us. We're talking to people who are believing. We're talking to people who are following. Justice will be served. Every sin will be paid for. I can pay the price for my sin, which means I do it in hell. Or I can accept Jesus' payment for my sin, which he did on the cross. Someone will pay the price for my sin, either me or Jesus. 
these were believers who were looking forward to the sacrifice. They're believing in Jesus, even though they didn't know his name. Right? And he said he didn't treat us as our sins deserve. Here's the, the line I want you to realize. It's not highlighted, but it says his, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. If you went outside and looked up, you could not see where up ended. There is no stopping place where you can hook a tape measure and measure up. Now, I happen to think, and I could be wrong, and it doesn't matter, I happen to think there is an edge somewhere. I think there is an end somewhere. I think God created time and space, and I think time and space come to an end, and somewhere out there, God knows exactly how far the universe goes, and, and whatever is beyond the universe. He knows where it ends, but I can't fathom that. So God says, as, as far above the earth as you can look, as far as the heavens are above the earth, that's how much I love you. So he says, an unfathomable amount of love I have for you. You can't measure it. You can't determine it. You can't see it. You can't put it in a bottle. You can't even describe it. That's how much I love you. But it is measurable. Okay? Then he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Now I want you to think about this. Don't get too technical with me because it's an illustration. All right? But you can only go so far north before you get to the North Pole. And you can only go so far south before you hit the South Pole. Once you get to that spot, you, then you're, you go south, you get to the South Pole, then you go north again. But you can go west and never stop going west. And you can stop and turn around and go east. And you can never stop going east again. East and west don't have that magic end to them that as far as the heavens are above the earth. So God said, you can't fathom how much I love you. And you can't understand how much I've forgiven you. Your transgressions are so far away from my countenance and my recollection and, and my thought processes that it's like they went west and they never stopped going west. And some others went east and they never stopped going east. And they're never going to circle around and they're never going to come back. They are absolutely 100% gone, removed, forgiven. How much does God forgive as far as the east is from the west? So in your notes, number one, forgiveness is an act of God's grace. We don't deserve it. It's an act of God's grace. Number two, God's love has a measurable illustration. Now, I'm not saying we can measure it. Please hear that. I, I'm not even, I'm not even going to pretend to say we can measure it. The illustration has a measurement only known to God. And he's saying, you can't fathom my love. But God's illustrated forgiveness, okay, the same Holy Spirit that inspired the first line, inspired the second line, and the illustration he gives for forgiveness has no end. It is not measurable. And again, he's just saying, you can't fathom my love and, and, and you can't reason my forgiveness. It is so far gone, it's like it never existed. As far as the east is from the west. So what do we do with all this forgiveness? I hope that I've given you enough scripture that you, you cannot say back to me, I wonder if I'm forgiven. I wonder if it worked. I wonder if God meant it. If you've accepted 
the gift of salvation, if you've said to God, I accept your gift of forgiveness, the gavel fell at that moment in time. You were redeemed, you were saved, and you were forgiven. And those sins at that moment in time became as far away as the east is from the west. Forgiveness is a thing. What do we do with this forgiveness, though? How, what, do I need to, what do I need to think about? Well, number one, especially if you're a new believer... Or at some point in time when you struggle with something you've never struggled with before, I should never allow Satan to tell me God has not, will not, or will no longer forgive me of my sins. And, and I, I put the word allow there on purpose because it's, it's your decision. Satan will lie to you for sure. He's going to tell you lie after lie after lie. He's going to keep telling you lies until he comes up with something that you consider. And if you consider it, then he's going to keep telling you until he can convince you. And if he can convince you, he's going to try to cripple you with that lie. And he's going to keep saying it, he's going to keep saying it, he's going to keep saying it. Now as we mature in our faith, pretty soon this lie doesn't have a lot of effect. Until something big happens. And then he comes along and he says something like, well, you know, if you were really saved, that would have never happened. Maybe you're not forgiven. Maybe you've been fooling yourself. Or he'll say, well, you've been forgiven of a lot. But this one? Nah, you know, Christians don't do those kinds of things, so I'm not sure that counts. He's going to lie like that. And we can't allow him to get away with that. We, we need to say, get behind me, Satan. We need to pray to God and say, thank you for your forgiveness. Take these thoughts out of my mind. So we cannot allow Satan to tell us those lies. Number two, we need to realize that Jesus' forgiveness never has a qualifier attached to it. It never has a qualifier. It never says, I'll forgive you unless, or I won't forgive you until, or I will forgive you if. There, there's no qualifier attached to it. And, and where, does, where does the lie of Satan come in here? Well, he starts, he starts adding the qualifiers. Yeah, you heard the gospel. Well, he'll save you one day if, and then you start trying to accomplish if. That's a lie of Satan. There is no qualifier. We also have to remember if we've been saved for a while and we've matured and we've grown past certain temptations, we have to remember that Jesus' forgiveness has no qualifier for the next person. We can never put a qualifier on the next person. Well, Jesus loves you. He died for your sins. He wants to forgive you. And you need to quit this. That's not how it works. We never clean up before we come to Christ. Christ cleans us up after we've come. We don't ever say, well, I'd love to have you in church. Um, you need to do this first. I'd love to tell you about Jesus, but here's some things you need to work on. We never allow anyone to say, I want to be a Christian, but I have to get these things taken care of first. We don't accept that thinking. We reply with, no, actually you don't. Jesus is the one who will clean those things up. Jesus is the one who will bring about the change. You come as you are. Jesus accepts you as you are. And then he begins the process of change. And you change in the order of what he thinks is most important for you. So we have to have that idea. We can't forget that as, as older believers. Number three... I must treat my forgiveness as a done deal. A done deal. I must treat it as a done deal. It, it's, it's, it's over. Not to be discussed. 
not to be brought up, not to be evaluated, not to be redone. It's done. I've been forgiven. I am forgiven. There's, there's no reason to revisit. And, and i got to treat my forgiveness that way. And when I can treat my forgiveness that way, then, this is what goes in your blank, I can focus. Okay, when I don't have to think about my forgiveness in, in, in the terms of gaining it, then I can focus my attention on God's commands, principles, boundaries, desires, and instructions. And I could probably add 10 or 12 more words. I'm going to focus my attention on God's thoughts, God's ways, God's will, and I do it after my salvation. I do it after my salvation, regarding life after my salvation. I no longer say, am I forgiven? Now I say, what does God want me to do? How does God want me to live? What does God, what is God asking me for moving forward? What kind of person do I need to become? What kind of relationships do I need to have? What kind of conversations should I be having? What should my life goals be? I treat my forgiveness as a done deal and focus my attention on God's commands, principles, boundaries, desires, and instructions regarding life after salvation. Now, our tagline is not in your notes because I ran out of room. But good news for you, it's on the screens. It's the same as the title today. It's not always the same as the title, as my wife has pointed out every week. It's not always the same as the title, but today it is. So here's our tagline. I believe I am forgiven. Help me leave any doubt behind forever. Leave it behind. Any doubt. How long forever? And that's going to that's gonna allow me to live fully embracing my forgiveness. I believe I am forgiven. There's so much scripture. I could have gone on for another hour. I believe I am forgiven. Help me leave any doubt behind forever. So I'm going to start this. I'm going to start with dear Jesus. And we're all going to say this together. And then I'm going to close in prayer. So dear Jesus, I believe I am forgiven. Help me leave any doubt behind forever. Father God, thank you so much that this is the way you do things. Thank you so much that we don't have to get up in the morning and wonder if we're forgiven today or wonder if we're going to be forgiven tomorrow. Thank you that you forgave all our sins, past, present, and future, so I can just work on not sinning and I can work on living correctly and I don't have to worry and contemplate and, and hope that that when I do stand before you, you're in a good mood. Thank you that when your gavel falls, it's final. And your gavel has fallen in the life of every believer. And it's not fallen yet in the life of an unbeliever. And any unbeliever among us or listening online or anyone we talk to can receive that same forgiveness because there's plenty of it available to everybody. Thank you for all these things. Thank you for being that God. Thank you for being holy and perfect and, and full of mercy and grace so that we can be granted things we don't deserve and we can receive things that shouldn't belong to us. So, Father, help us to live with a complete understanding that we're forgiven, never having to worry about that again. Let us just concentrate on moving forward in that sanctification that we talked about. Lord, if there's anyone here who hasn't received that forgiveness yet, I pray that they would, that they would stop and have a conversation with you, admit they're a sinner, receive your forgiveness, commit to living your way instead of the old way, and then, and then you just take over and help them change their life for the better. 
Help us to be available for those conversations as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.